0: I've, I've done over a decade in local public health and dealt with reportable disease data of which race and ethnicity is a reportable data element. Um, it's missing a lot. Even in COVID-19, we know from the CDC that only 65% of reported cases of COVID-19, which was a reportable disease in a pandemic, had required race and ethnicity information. And and it was a little bit better, 85% among those who have died.
1: From Redox and Healthcare Strategy Bullpen, welcome to Diagnosing Health Tech, the show where we talk about healthcare and the technology driving it with the most interesting leaders in the industry. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Jeff Bing Linder. I'm the founder and principal of Healthcare Strategy Bullpen. Uh, welcome to Diagnosing Health Tech. Uh, first, a uh, quick note, Diagnosing Health Tech is now available as a podcast. Please search for it on your favorite podcast app uh, and subscribe. And um, with that, I will move on to welcome our two guests. Uh, very excited to have Uh, Susan Winkler and Carla Rodriguez-Watson here, uh, both from the Reagan-Udall Foundation. Uh, Susan is the CEO of the Reagan-Udall Foundation, and I'll let uh, Carla and Susan explain what that is and what they do. Uh, Susan is a pharmacist and an attorney by training. Uh, Susan is a wonderful colleague and friend, absolutely a person you want to know if you need to know someone in D.C., uh, Susan is the former president of Levitt Partner Solution, which was a national healthcare strategy firm founded by uh, Mike Levitt, the former secretary of HHS. Susan is also the former chief of staff of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration from 2007 to 2009, in addition to a host of uh, other accolades. So, Susan, welcome.
2: Thanks so much. Glad to be here.
1: And in addition, uh, from uh, Reagan-Udall, we have Carla Rodriguez-Watson. Carla is the Director of Research at the Reagan-Udall Foundation. Uh, Carla has a PhD in epidemiology uh, from the University of Washington School of Public Health and her Master's of Public Health from the Columbia uh, uh, School, the Mailman School of Columbia, which is just down the road from those of us who teach at NYU. Um, No competition there whatsoever, Carla. Um, and wanna, wanna Carla's work has been focusing on leveraging real-world data um, and experience to inform the conduct of clinical uh, and post-market drug safety and effectiveness studies. Uh, Carla has over 25 years in public health uh, in local, national, international settings. She's done a lot with real-world big data for public health surveillance, including on uh, viral hepatitis, HIV, influenza, SUD, liver and kidney disease. So welcome, Carla and Susan. So happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Jeff. So one of the things that we talked about is is using real-world information and evidence in terms of getting data on the people you're trying to serve. So, uh, can you talk to us about what the Reagan Udall Foundation is, and also you undertook a project, and I want to make sure I get this right. So, bear with me as I look at my notes really carefully. The real world accelerator to improve the standard and collection of collection and curation of race and ethnicity data in healthcare. So a very long title, but really important. So if you could just tell us what is the Reagan-Udall Foundation? What is your mission? And, and how did you come about uh, working on RAISE?
2: So I'll do the what is the foundation and then I'm gonna hand it to Carla for RAISE as she was the, is the principal investigator for that project. So the Reagan-Udall Foundation for the FDA, we're a, a nonprofit non-government organization that Congress created so that's there's only a few of, of those entities that exist, but Congress created the foundation to help FDA do more to protect and promote uh, the public's health and so we pursue projects that help the agency do a better job um, in the case of the project that Carla is about to talk about it's um, as the agents as FDA and the industries that it regulates, tries to do better at things like having clinical trials that are representative of the populations where the drugs or devices might be used, Um, you need to have good information about who has the conditions that might be treated by those drugs or or devices. Um, and, And so that's a space where we can help the agency um, improve and help regulated industry improve what they bring to the agency. Um, other types of projects that we do is help um, the agency to understand or to be um, familiar with the real world use of the products that they regulate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, what what are some of the payment policies? What happens um, in in the real world? You know, things like we were just talking with them about nutrition policy and the fact that you know in the real world we don't eat things one at a time we eat a plate of food (laughs) and so having kind of like figuring out well then how do i piece together the nutrition information so i understand all this on my plate not just one or a couple of things so that's a food example but it gets to that that idea of what what are the the things that happen outside of the .gov and the regulatory activity Mm -hmm. that then can help FDA do a better job. So Carla, do you
0: want to talk about race? Yeah. And as Susan said, how can we, there are things happening outside of FDA's direct purview that influence their, the work that they do and the things and the information they need to help make good decisions, regulatory decisions on medical products. And one of those things is really having a good understanding of population-based estimates of disease burden of medication utilization. And one of the things that uh, um, I've persistently noticed working with real-world data, both from a public health perspective, I've, I've done over a decade in local public health and dealt with reportable disease data of which race and ethnicity is a reportable data element. Um, it's missing a lot, even in COVID-19. We know from the CDC that only 65% of reported cases of COVID-19, which was a reportable disease in a pandemic, had required race and ethnicity information. 65%. And it was a little bit better, 85% among those who have died. But that's a huge percentage of unknown. And when you have, that's a missing data problem. And when you can't, Completely describe the population. Then, the in the best case scenario, our estimates of effect of medical product or 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 risk safety risk are underpowered, and at worst they're they're biased. And we know that this missing race information is not random. More people of color have reporting um, missing race. So, how do we fix it? I mean, it's a it's a pro- the root of this problem is really in that is is driving the data that the FDA is able to receive either through recruitment into clinical trials, because if we can't completely describe the population, then we can't know who's really at risk and do the appropriate um, recruitment to have an inclusive and representative trial of people with those conditions. Um, And further, I
1: think- Uh, And I I apologize for interrupting Carla, but correct me if I'm wrong, Wasn't that a a, a very big issue in terms of the vaccines and COVID in the sense that the recruitment numbers uh, and I'm going off memory here, were generally somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, 10 to 15 percent for both Asians and African-American minorities. Um, But the number of people impacted by the disease for those two groups was upwards of 30 or 40 percent.
0: Right. I mean, you nailed it, Jeff. It's a huge healthcare disparity. And we I think risk um, this becoming worse if we cannot get more inclusive trials or meet yep. people where they are.
2: Yeah, and let the me jump, yeah, and let me jump in on the, the vaccine question because it, it relates to not only the right the, the information that we generate so that we can evaluate the products, it also relates to consumer acceptance. Yeah. One of the Right? One of the projects the foundation did for FDA in COVID-19 was to just go out and talk to traditionally underserved communities, to gather their thoughts and questions about a COVID-19 vaccine. And what we heard loud and clear is that these populations wanted to know that people who looked like them and people who lived like them were included in the clinical trials, right? Not overrepresented and not underrepresented, but are there, are there people who live and look like me in those trials? Well, if we don't know what the people live and look like, then, then we can't have them in the trials. And then when I go to see, do I think this will work for me and for my family? Uh, my, my willingness to trust the data is decreased because I don't see myself yeah. reflected there.
1: Right. And what? So, so Carla, what did you as you, as you undertook raise, and I and uh, I, I think you've come to the conclusion portion of it. Can you talk about you know what you found, and what were some of the barriers to to collecting the data, and what are ways to do that more effectively?
0: Sure, Jeff, and like. I think what what I didn't talk about is what we did in RAISE. I mean, we knew that there was this missing data problem, but we also know that there are really good solutions out there. But there's there's either a a lack of really understanding of knowledge about these potential solutions Mm -hmm. and a bigger gap in being able to implement and operationalize and take to scale. So the missing data problem isn't just about people not reporting. I think that's a huge part of it. And part right. of it is what Susan alluded to is that there's a lack of trust. There needs to be an improved trust in why. And, and part of that is with transparency. There needs to be an improved knowing about why the data are being collected, how it is, will be used, and how it will benefit the community or the patient themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's that reporting. Then there's the collection aspect of it. Like, once, how are we asking the question? Are we asking it in ways that will solicit a response? Are we? Um,
2: what well, uh, are we asking? Are we asking? <laughs> First, are we, are we asking? Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Or are we observing? Which perpetuates that trust issue again. And there's there's a lot of, I mean, especially as the U.S. becomes more interracially mixed, people are not presenting People present differently than as they are, no. right? Um, and then as you get to cohorts collection, there's the whole curation aspect of it. Um, how do we protect the data? How do we uh, how do we combine that data? How do we treat people that are reporting multiple races? How do we maintain that information over time as information gets updated? Because we know that race is not a stagnant variable it's not a constant it changes people report differently over time how do we preserve that especially as we get to that last component of this continuum called exchange there's exchange of data for healthcare purposes for um, payer purposes um, for research purposes how as data move from a single system, and even within a single system, multiple source data, right? Multiple vendors contributing to those data. How does it move? How does it get aggregated? As it gets de-identified, how do we maintain that track of that patient? So we we developed RAISE as a series of workshops to, to talk through each of that those steps in the continuum, identify the gaps, but more importantly, the solutions that are existing, share them and have a dialogue, a discussion about the pros and cons of implementing some of those solutions. And at the end, we came up with a summary um, list of learnings that is represented by an acronym yeah. called RISE UP, which you can see <laughs> on our website if you go to ReaganUdall.org slash program slash research slash raise. <laughs>
2: You can see what that Just is. Just go to ReaganUdall.org. You'll find it. Yeah.
1: And so what, so can you give us a, a kind of summary of like, if you had to pick a couple of the most important things you found in terms of of getting the data and some of the solutions, what 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 were the biggest barriers you saw? And then I want to come back to trust, but what were some of the biggest barriers you saw and what were some of the ways to overcome some of those solutions?
0: Yeah, the biggest the biggest gap, uh, and I think fundamental, I have to start with the trust. I mean, that's fundamental and what, yeah, what we found um, echoed through each step. And that community is the solution, is has to be part of the solution. Uh, there was a great quote from one of our workshops where it's not about research, uh, community at the research table. It's research at the community table.
1: Yeah, really absolutely. That's a great Understanding,
0: way of yeah, what uh, a, a community's um, core needs, wants are, and their how they would define health equity, mm-hmm. and a, and moving forward in a way that supports that, not just our initiatives for what we think health equity is. Um, And that opens up a lot, some of the other barriers, including one being a lack of transparency and understanding of how to, of why race is being asked. We know that race and ethnicity are a proxy for many different things, and it's, but, and we're we're being asked to use, to define it according to the Office of Management and Budget Guidelines, Statistical Policy 15, which has currently Five categories of race and one separate variable for ethnicity, which happens to be Hispanic or non-Hispanic, which never resonated with me as a (laughs) Filipino American. So
1: now, don't don't that 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 categorization goes back to almost the early two thousands, doesn't it? And that's is that going to be updated soon? It goes
0: before that, um, and there is a proposal for a change. And, um, and one of the and that proposal was driven, partly informed by community uh, involvement. The, one of the proposals is to include a now a category for Middle Eastern North African. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the groups that came on to raise um, talked about how they worked with the largest uh, Middle Eastern uh, group in in America. It's located outside of Detroit. Um, called access. And through that work, you know, the issue is that people uh, people of Arab and Middle Eastern descent do not identify as white and they do not identify as black. So they really had no place to put themselves. Um, and through the work that this the group did uh, for the All of us project, the NIH All of Us project, they were able to advocate to include in a national survey this new category of race. Um, which is now being considered um, as a permanent change to the OMB. But those those data that those OMB categories were collected for purposes of of tracking um, in government mm-hmm. records, access to services for people that had been, you know, previously privileged or discriminated against. But that's not how it's being used, right? People want to use race and ethnicity sometimes for biology and. Race is a socio political variable. Um, it does, so we have to think about other variables that better capture genetic ancestry or that relate to geography, like countries of origin or something like that. But really, we didn't tackle that.
2: We didn't tackle, well, right. Well, because race and ethnicity is you were right in the, the current construct it's used to help us understand and try and address uh those disparities right in that if you if you don't have the information to be able to look and see um uh it's hard to correct a problem that you haven't illustrated and, and that you aren't then collecting the information to to correct it
1: Mm-hmm. so let me let me ask you a question, Susan, as as we talked about, and Susan and I met uh, for lunch, and that's how this it uh, came about. When we met for lunch, you know, how talk about the practical aspects of this in terms of, you know how this impacts both drug development, medical d- device development, even access to care, in the sense of it's a bit of an academic exercise to collect the data because we can see. You know how it impacts uh, certain groups in terms of uh you know vaccines and other things but in terms of companies that are, and in terms of new regulations that say the fda has you know this data actually matters um because it's going to translate into how this impacts the development of, of the different products so can you talk to that
2: yeah happy to so um you know, one of the the things we, you know, if you're bringing a drug or a device, uh, trying to, to innovate and, and do the research to bring a drug or device to market, one of the hallmark ways you do that is to conduct clinical trials and see, does this product work the way that we, we think it will work? And it's important to understand and define the population that's in those clinical trials. As I mentioned, we know for consumer acceptance, that they people want to see themselves reflected in the clinical trial, if they're supposed to be uh potentially using the product um and to know if they're there, you have to have the information about who was in your clinical trial and how mm-hmm. how do how do they live how do i you know what what are, are things that are important about them and so 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 it's a it's a bit of there's there's this um kind of the the ecosystem of data is is somewhat circular, right? In that trying to say, if I want to bring a new treatment, let's just use COVID-19. Let's say that I wanted to bring a new treatment for severe COVID-19. Well, I, when I think about how I want to do my clinical trials, I need to know who most often experiences severe COVID-19. So I look in the health records and the insurance claims and gather the information. That The only information i'll be able to gather is or or recover uncover in those sources is what was gathered so if it doesn't tell me what the if it doesn't tell me important things like race and ethnicity or even gender or some of that other information then um i'm i'm somewhat blinded so i only know what's in that information and then i design my clinical trials based on that Information that may or may not be complete. So, um, mm-hmm. maybe one of the ways to think about it is if you were, if you were um, painting a picture, you have to work from the color palette that is in the healthcare data that already exists in order to then set your color palette for your clinical trials. Right. Um, you you don't get to go beyond that because there isn't anything else there. So what's Im- important here? We need to. And we need to improve the quality and the quantity of the information that's collected so that we can draw a better picture of the disease we're trying to treat to then better design the clinical trials and have better representation in the clinical trials um, so that those who want to participate can participate. and. Um, Raise didn't solve engaging in clinical trials. That's a whole other project that we <laughs> that that is right, right like like underway. Um, but I, I actually want to step back, uh, Jeff, and and do a bit about. I, I was thinking this morning that that a common question when we talk about this is 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 a bit of a you know why do you need this why 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 does it matter um, how possibly does information collected in administering a vaccine, right? Part of cl- classic uh, healthcare delivery, or no. you know, administering a medication, or or getting a device. How does that play into this broader than um, you know, developing new drugs or monitoring the performance of new drugs or devices? And and so I want to step back and, and give you a whole new metaphor to think about the information. Okay. And, so, so let's, let's step out of healthcare and, and think to something that, that is probably something that any, any of us have done, where you've um, gathered a group of people. Uh, when you're gathering a group of people, there are, there's different information that you need depending on what it is that you're gonna do, right? So if you're gonna, yep, you're gonna have at some point, at some time if you're just gathering, you need to know a number of how many people are planning to be there. Um, but you don't need to know much more. And in fact, if it's a virtual gathering, you don't even really need to know that, <laughs> you right. Need to, right? It could be as any. But if it's my table, I need to know if it's going to be 10 or 11 or 12 people, right. I, right? I might also need to know if any of those 10 or 11 or 12 need something other than a regular chair at the table. Right, it, it's, it becomes no. important. It's not important to me on a virtual, but it is important to me in a physical table if they're in a wheelchair or need some other, um, right, like some other different posture. Mm-hmm. If I'm gonna serve food, I also really want to know their food allergies and their yeah, intelligence. Exactly. Yeah, I, I see where you're going. It totally makes sense. And their immersions, right? Like different, so different needs, need different information.
1: Yeah, no. My sister's a vegetarian. You need a vegetarian plate. I, you know, some right. people don't like milk and cheese, you know, or it doesn't agree with them, etc.
2: Right. And I didn't need that if I was just having a virtual meeting, or if I'm having an in person and I didn't serve any food. But the, so there's different information needs. What's what the challenges we see in in collecting that information is that we have a history in healthcare of misusing that information. Yeah. Right? So so what, what what, I have to create is an environment that says, if you tell me you need a different type of a seat at the table, I'm still going to invite you to the table. I'm not going to use that to exclude yeah. you from the table. Similarly, if you tell me that you have a dairy allergy, I'm not going to be like, well, shoot, I was planning on, <laughs> right, <laughs> a, a wine and cheese party and you just blew it up. I, I have to create an environment where I can ask for and collect that information and that I won't use it against you, but rather will use it to better serve you. That is that is something that we have to, that, that the healthcare delivery system and the payment system is trying to do a better job of every day, but you re, like it has to be intentional and we have to do better at it. And then The way that Carla and I and regulated industry and FDA thinks about using that information is that um, it's not a situation where I can go out and ask again. We have to work from the information that's already been collected. So if it's not there, you're right, because you're doing research about what has happened the information has to be there up front. So it's, right. it's not a metaphor where I can go out and say, okay, we're going to serve. What do you, I, I have to have already gotten that information. All of that then requires, you know, to, to continue my metaphor, it's a bit of, we're going to be friends and here's the information I need you to fill out <laughs> to, to, to be in my cohort. Well, then we have to explain, so Similarly, in the healthcare system, we have to better explain why we're collecting that information and how it would be used. And most importantly, that I'm gonna use it to do a better job to serve you.
1: No, absolutely, no, I, I, I totally get that. So, the, so that brings me back to Carla's earlier point of trust mm-hmm. and and transparency. And, you know, I was talking to folks at a, a, a hospital innovation area the other day, and we were talking about the ADCAR model for change. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know, it starts off with, you know, awareness, desire, knowledge, um, you know, ability, and I think reinforcements, the last one. But the, the, to get to the desire to have people to give you this data, you need they need to trust you. They need to know. They need to have that transparency. So, to help people do that, you know, what did you find that 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 allowed people, Carla, to mm-hmm. kind of feel vulnerable and want to say? In Susan's example, hey, you know what? I am lactose intolerant. Uh, you know, I don't want to get. I don't want to get. Um, you know, excluded from your wine and cheese party. Um, and you know, what are you going to do with this data when I want to give it to you? What What kinds of things did you find? helped allow organizations to co- to collect race and ethnicity data and and to give people that they were collecting it from the confidence that that you would be used appropriately
0: yep yeah i'd love to talk about that but first susan thank you i mean susan knows her audience she's speaking my love language of food and so <laughs> it's a great metaphor to think about you know how we can serve people better and we do know um that patients over and over, have reported a willingness to provide information, a willingness to engage in clinical trials, a willingness to do these studies, but they need to know why. A lot of the reasons why they do not participate is because they don't know exactly why, the why, the what, and the how does this benefit. Mm -hmm. So we do really need to make that transparent. so one of the things that we, one of the the problems that we identified in RAISE was the simultaneous problem of having too much and too little information regarding the choice of the racial categories. Mm-hmm. And that, again, our, our solution to that is really to start locally, is to re- a focus on local um, information and being able to engage the community. So... Healthcare organizations are really grappling with right-sizing the number of race and ethnicity options and standardizing those options. So um, what, what we saw was that there, is, there are large electronic health record vendors, for example, that do work with their clients in certain geographic populations and are able to create a product that is more tailored to that population. So what we, what we, one of our solutions was to establish a clear goal of wanting to improve the collection of those data to inform, mm-hmm. inform existing standards and protocols, doing some research to develop a menu of race and ethnicity responses for a given healthcare organization's catchment population that would involve the community in having their input.
1: And, and, and then can you just help me out with, and I don't mean to interrupt again, but help me out with, you know, what were the kind of basic mechanics? How did you help? You know, what did people say, you know, what ways did they suggest going out into the community? What kinds of things did, did you find worked to do that research?
0: Right. Working through a, like one research group worked with that, a trusted community organization where there was a lot of involvement. I mentioned about that Northeast, um, the Arab community Population uh, center, the, it's called access, um, Mm -hmm, in the Detroit area. Uh, and really having them explain their needs and, and creating a tool that, uh, creating, uh, categories, identifying the categories that were meaningful to them that allow them to self identify. And with that, then once the community is able to identify how they best self-identify, you can go to, there are already existing value sets, like the CDC's value set for race and ethnicity includes 900 plus options for race and ethnicity. But Mm -hmm. no one wants to go through 900 options when you're trying to get a mammogram, right? You need to be presented with those that are relevant to your population and to your community. And we see this um, across the board. We know that EPIC, for example, has different population um, categories for their uh, in-care systems that are in the West Coast versus the East Coast versus the South, based right. on what the population is. I, for a long time, was an investigator at Kaiser. Um, and I know that the racial categories in the Mid-Atlantic for Kaiser uh, are different than those in Northern California. So, you know.
2: Yeah, care- and then. Right. And then that comes to some of the curation, right? Because you need that localization for collection, but then you need a way to crosswalk and say, how does that, you know, translate to those OMB buckets that are what have to be required, you know, that's right. what's required in federal regulatory submissions. So that's some of the, the curation piece. And that's another one where we, um, I'd say we, we exposed a challenge that, that I don't know what that we've solved, but you know, some of, the, some of the ways where you see, sometimes you'll see conflicting race and ethnicity information, hmm. um, right? And, and that, right, that can change based on how much do I trust you who asked me information for my mammogram versus how much do I trust you who asked me information for my vaccine shot, I might, I might give different answers. I'm actually quite right, and so what sometimes happens there, if there's conflicting information or or it's more than one race, is that it gets tossed. It either gets dropped out, right? Not so helpful, or it gets thrown into a multi race, which actually just it's it's about the same as dropping it out. Yeah, right. No. If, you, if you go back to my allergy example, if you say lots of allergies, can't help you. <laughs> That that doesn't help me refine my menu. Right.
1: right. So,
0: me yeah. Go ahead,
2: Carla.
0: I was just gonna say, and multi-race isn't one of the OMB categories.
2: Correct, correct. At that's that's rate. one of those things that happens in a curation, right? Of of trying to say we don't want to lose the information and yet in the same way you still lose the information. So we have to get yeah. better at how we both at collection and then the curation and use.
0: But so in terms of the, one of those standards, Jeff, sorry, I just want to close no, no, no. that out. Like, one of those solu- potential solutions was this, like, it's both starting locally and getting the information you need to pick from these standardized options out there, the 900 plus from the CDC value set that do roll up to the 5 B categories currently. And we just need to be able to have an opportunity to look at the granular level and see best how can we... Um, you know, what applies and be able to standardize that. And going to those value sets that do that are standardized, that do roll up to the federally reported categories that we all need if we're gonna submit to federal regulators or get federal dollars, we need to have that. I mean, it's just a, a way of life. And maybe in the future that will change, but that's our reality.
1: Look, let me ask you this question. One of the things we did a blog on this uh, a couple months ago about uh, hospitals and providers collecting social determinants of health data. And one of the pieces we read came back was said, "Oh, initially the people in the clinic were like, uh, the the doctors felt it took too long. it was too burdensome. The other clinicians felt it was it was, you know it was similar. And by the time everybody after everybody collected it, they found it actually wasn't so bad. So, did you come out against that? Did you come up against that argument? And what types of things, you know, if someone says, "Yeah, well, we don't want to collect this. It's 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 a pain. It's 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 more. You know, we're already overworked. We're spending ninety minutes a night in pajama time. I don't have to enter in another field to the EMR." Did you come up against this? And and what did you find you you did that was effective?
0: So true. Um, I want to highlight the. The, the burden on providers, frontline clinicians is huge. And so mm-hmm. we, we learned through RAIDS, actually, our first, our first um, meeting, our kickoff meeting, we had Oscar Benavides of Massachusetts General Hospital present on work that their group did in uh, the pediatric department to really understand and sit through the process of intake at registration. Their goal also to improve Collection um, and reporting of race and ethnicity, and and see how there's how their teams were taking in the information, and under, and the f- interesting finding that they had was that even though that frontline receptionist staff see taking it out of the provider's visit, right? So not another thing for the doctor to do. Can it be something outside of that room in the registration? But when they interviewed the the registration team, you know everyone thought. Most people thought, you know, there's a high level of um, importance of health equity, but they didn't get there. They didn't see the the connection between collecting race and ethnicity information and health equity. So there needs to be a better communication about why these data are important, how it can inform health equity and do the training. How do I sensitively ask about that? Why is it important to ask? You know, why can't I just observe it? like and and do that and be able to do sensitive you know culturally uh, humble training about how you can ask this these kinds of questions sensitively and culturally you know se- sensitive way um,
2: and yeah, really humility,
0: understanding their workflow yeah, so that humility
2: right humility might have been an underscoring component of all the solutions yeah right in that that this is not a I can come in and solve it with one thing or two things. It's a, how do we um, better understand why we're collecting in three information, how the information will you, we're going to use it, and, and who should be involved in, in, in asking, um, right. all important.
1: Well, one last question I know I wanted to get to, and I, I thank you for your time. I didn't know if there are any questions, um, you know, David or uh, Abby uh, um, or Catherine. Um, but uh, one question I did want to ask, Susan, is what um, you had talked about the kind of payer myth uh, that, um, you know, payers would say, we're not gonna collect this. I'm not sure, you know, uh, you could phrase it better than I can, but could you just talk about, you know, what what is that myth and and how would you overcome it?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I've heard, you know, in in where we've talked about our project is they said, oh, well, payers don't collect it. They They're prohibited from collecting it. It's illegal for them to collect it. They're absolutely not going to collect it. Just not consistent and not true. <laughs> And so there are it, it what what is is illegal is misusing the information. and so the the collection and then applying, again, it's back to this trust piece. And Carla, you have some of the specifics on this, but it's distinctly it's it's important for the payer to understand the population that they're covering. And so this is helpful information. and then and then to use it again in a way, to better serve that population. Um, so I think there's the myth of payers can't do this. That's a myth. They they actually can and many um, are and more should.
0: And the value-based payment models, these alternative payment yeah. models that are being pushed by CMS, all require having um, um, race and ethnicity data. and as a way of improving metrics on access to mammograms or like those health equity, those, those uh, measures of, of quality and care. And yeah, to, I was going to say point, that isn't, always...
1: isn't this an emphasis of the Biden administration and of the REACH data of, you know, mm-hmm. increasing the collection of race and ethnicity data and doing it in an effective way?
2: Right, an effective and a way that, that right like that helps us all. That yeah, we have yeah. a better understanding of um, the interventions and the outcomes of our healthcare system. We yeah, so that we
0: know that. that so that we know that mammogram screenings aren't just up from last year in women all across women of reproductive age but in all women of reproductive age across all racial categories you can't know that if you don't have the race and ethnicity information we can't address maternal mortality properly if we don't have race and ethnicity information i mean we already know it's a huge disparity is that yeah. just the tip of the iceberg and how are we not you know identifying these things earlier or being able to help the population and the new you know these new payment models really emphasize being able to construct systems to collect this information. There's money out there to be had to <laughs> retrofit information systems, to be able to collect and capture this information um, and ha- as it aligns with improving care and access.
1: Right. Well, well, um, Carla and Susan, I really want to thank you. This has been incredibly informative. Um, you know, I highly suggest people go to the RAISE report. Um, it is on, you know, the Reagan Udall site. Um, you know, this will increasingly become an issue um, and helping people understand and feel comfortable why you're collecting the data and how you're going to use the data and how you're going to protect the data, um, I think is is really super important. And uh, we thank you very much both for your time and, and wish you a, a wonderful, happy holiday season and and uh, really appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Thank, thank you. you Jeff. Thanks, Carla. So with that, um, we, as you'll notice, we are down to just me as a host today. Um, So uh, we're gonna go right to our quick hits and I will try to do this um, all in one piece. Uh, So uh, first article, which was incredibly interesting uh, from Bloomberg was that Amazon had once inspired fear in healthcare, but no longer. Uh, The crux of the article is that Amazon has spent a decade working on healthcare, uh, trying to reinvent healthcare, but their inability to make decisions and incorporate the healthcare expertise that they brought in has left them with a very traditional approach using very traditional mechanisms. In essence, the argument for the article is nothing they have done has been incredibly exceptional or had exceptional impact, uh, which I think is still a little early. But I would agree with that. Um, you know, uh, one of the conclusions of the article is that all the things they have done have been modified or scaled back. Uh, importantly, I think Amazon, uh, the article points out, has let technology managers with little or no healthcare expertise take over some of these projects. And I think that's been a big mistake. Uh, they generally ignore a lot of the experts they brought in, according to the article. And because of that, they haven't had as big an impact. For example, only about 6% of the pharmacy business in the U.S. is Amazon Pharmacy, which is really a drop in the bucket. Similarly, they've only got about 800,000 members. With one medical, that's barely uh, a you know small uh, percentage. Uh, and interestingly, one medical has now been taken, and you can get a, a discounted membership through Prime. I don't know if you remember when Prime started taking off, and you could get the the cheaper Prime membership, but the numbers were huge. Um, only about sixteen percent uh rise in one medical membership since it became part of prime so not not a big impact. I think the lesson here is that you have to incorporate people from healthcare from the beginning. You have to incorporate multiple points of view uh of healthcare and you have to build it from the ground up. Uh so interesting to see um how this all turns. Uh as Carla referred to um you know uh the Healthcare disparities in care are huge. There was an article about preterm birth and infant mortality measures in the U.S. remain stubbornly high. Approximately 10.5% of the babies burn in the U.S. are born premature. That's defined as before 37 weeks of gestation. Um, this is really a, a national crime, frankly. Our national average is about 10%. It's much higher than other industrialized countries, such as the U.K., Italy, and Japan, which are between 5 and 8%. In addition, this data adds to the picture of disparities that Carla was referring to in terms of childbirth outcomes in the US. Uh, About 15% of babies born to black families in the US are born premature and that's versus 9% uh, for for white and Asian. The infant mortality rate for um, black babies in the US is two and a half times what it is for white babies in the US. As I said, this is a, a national crime that we can and must do something to address. There are a number of ways in terms of uh, virtual care and digital solutions that can help in terms of uh, prenatal screening, prenatal care, and other things. And, and, you know, we really have to do something about this. Um, uh, Next was an article um, from the Commonwealth Fund about private equity's role in healthcare. The article was written by David Blumenthal, former national coordinator uh, for health IT. He has been an opponent of Medicare Advantage. He's arguing that there's been a change in the way that PE and firms are investing and they're essentially corrupting healthcare more or less. What he's arguing is that the PE firms are leveraging their healthcare investments to take out loans against the healthcare assets, pay the investors and the PE firms back and then lever- and then uh, salvage these, or, or um, uh, saddle rather, the healthcare companies with debt. Uh, In addition, what they're saying is, what David is saying is that they are uh, buying facilities, trimming fat, a number of people argued that they're trimming fat to the bone, and then essentially unloading these hubble companies on strategic investors. I would say I only partially agree. I think, first of all, when rates were extremely low, the strategy made a lot more financial sense you could borrow much easily and you could carry much more debt. Now that rates are up dramatically, the servicing of debt cost is much harder now. In addition, some trimming to the bone, uh, some trimming makes sense, but the strategy only works if there's waste in healthcare. And we know from a number of examples and a number of studies, there's tremendous waste in healthcare. So there is probably room for a strategy like this. Net, net, I would say there's a ton of places to point fingers. I don't think PE is the only one, but like Amazon, I think some of these PE investors have become confused that their intelligence um, with luck, given how uh, frothy the markets were and how low rates were, I think this is going to be much harder going forward. Uh, In addition, there was an article we had talked about last week that Cigna had put up. It's MA business for sale talk an article in the Wall Street Journal that Cigna and Humana were in talks for merger. Uh, this is incredibly important because if Cigna were to merge with Humana, they would have to divest their MA business. This would have to occur first for this to have any chance of approval, excuse me. Um, I do think that the a deal like this would face incredible re- regulatory scrutiny in front of the FTC. This would take a long time. Um, I see this as being a very tough deal uh, to get through. In the near term, this would benefit some of the other players. But I really think that this is uh, probably an un- unlikely combination, but more to come. And then finally, um, former Google uh, CEO Eric Schmidt said that companies' AI guardrails aren't enough to prevent harm. Eric Schmidt, speaking at the Axios AI Summit in DC, argued that companies' Putting up guardrails to prevent harm themselves aren't enough. Um, he had penned an article in Financial Times and excerpted it here, basically saying that you need an intermental government. Uh, excuse me, an intergovernmental body um, to form with industry experts to do this, and not the companies themselves to prevent harm. He thinks that, that would help prevent uh, political interference, and I think that's a nice idea. I think it's very unlikely. I think uh, governments are going to continue to want to be involved. They're going to continue to want to prevent harm. As you can see with what went on with OpenAI and some of their new developments, I think it's going to continue to result in interference, frankly, and overregulation of AI in the near term um, by governments. Um, So we encourage you to uh, check out all those articles. Um, With that, I will thank you very much for joining us. Um, This week's blog, Um, Given everything that happened with OpenAI, I want to call your attention to a prior blog post called Navigating the Ethical Landmines of AI in Healthcare. Uh, You can uh, scan the QR code and check it there. Uh, Please do uh, connect with us at Healthcare Strategy Bullpen. Uh, You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can uh, follow us on LinkedIn as well. You can also follow us on Twitter at healthcarepen.com or X, whatever they call it now. Um, We'd like you to think of us as the Rosetta Stone between technology and healthcare that's helping bridge the culture and language of healthcare and technology and help you adapt and deploy your healthcare tech uh, to improve the lives of patients. Uh, So please do connect with us. Um, I'd also like uh, you to encourage you to subscribe to Diagnosing Health Tech by scanning the QR code in the screen um, getting weekly invites to the show. As we mentioned earlier, it is on your favorite podcast app. So search your favorite podcast app for um, diagnosing health tech. Also like to remind you, the show is brought to you and sponsored by Redox as well. Redox is the healthcare integration platform that specializes in the implementation of big data, AI and cloud computing. I want to thank you all for joining us. Um, please do join us uh, next week. Um, when we will have Namrata Rastogi, um, who is uh, experienced with the National Health Service, on, you know, uh, looking at populations and helping get to populations and understand what you need to to work with uh, underserved and um, better serve populations that you're trying to work with. Um, from all of us at Diagnosing Health Tech. Uh, thanks for watching and we will see you next week. Thanks very much.